Duty Shall Be Done Old Grad Podcast, where we feature unscripted interviews with graduates of the United States Military Academy Class of 1991. The Duty Shall Be Done Old Grad Podcast with your host, Jamie Schleck, starts now. everybody. Welcome to the 36th edition of the Old Grad Podcast. I'm your host, Jamie Schleck. And we have a real treat tonight. We are joined by uh, three company mates from Company C3, and uh, we're going to be talking. We're going to be talking uh, to Charles Lapellis primarily about his recent 100-mile ultra run that he did last weekend. We want to hear all about that, and that was quite an accomplishment. And so, uh, everybody, welcome. Uh, we've got Charles Lapellis, we've got Paul Bagalka, and we've got uh, Brian Halloran. Uh, Brian, who is in the quote in the in finishing up pretty soon his uh 30 year career uh thank you for your service brian getting ready to retire here in, in a few more few more months or, or a few more weeks actually so we want to hear all about that too so welcome gentlemen welcome welcome to the old grad podcast thanks for having us <clears throat> so uh we were just talking actually before we were rolling into the in, into the credits here about who has actually heard or seen one of these old grad podcasts and I was 0 for 2 there. Charles, you've never seen or heard one. And Paul Bogalka, you haven't had you also have not heard or heard one. And Brian, I'm curious, have you have you heard the old grab podcast yet? Any of our classmates on it? Did I take the fifth? I, I have seen them. Um, I've never seen a full one. So I've kind of been in and out. Yeah, I really so wanted to see one once, Jamie, but I, I got sidetracked. Cool. I, I just want to make sure we're live. I, I got Jeff Simpson telling us that we're live. I, if you guys could just give us some thumbs up in the chat, just so that I can make sure that we're uh, we're happening. Because I just got a I got a message here from uh, Keith Brown, wondering if we're still having it, which we definitely are. Obviously, we're on we're on the line here. So, Brian, which one did which one did you listen to? Which uh, do you recall? I, I just want to make sure we're live. I, I got. Jeff Simpson telling us that we're live. It, it was one of the very first ones. Um, I don't remember the specifics. All right, cool. When you guys has your sound up on your on your machine, make sure that you uh, make sure that you don't have the podcast with the sound going on your uh, on on your computer, if you can. So we, that way we won't get the feedback coming. Well, so I'll I'll give you a quick sort of rundown. The purpose of the podcast is to help reconnect all of our classmates. Uh, we're coming up on 30 years since we graduated. So this was an opportunity for us to reconnect to each other, reconnect to events from West Point. Uh, it was also because I'm the class giving officer. And so I wanted to use this platform as a way to drive awareness around our class gift. Um, it was also intended to be a means for us to remember our fallen classmates. And finally, also a platform for us to um, to celebrate our collective successes and also to lift each other up where, where necessary. And so we're here tonight to really talk to Charles about his recent accomplishment of having run 100 miles. But before we do that, I mean, um, Charles, tell, give me the lay of the land. Like, where are you? Where do you live? Kids? What do you do for a living? All that kind of stuff. All right. So I'll give you the quick version. I live in Mickleton, New Jersey, which is probably three and a half, four hours south of West Point, almost directly in line, latitudinally, 
that didn't sound right, latitudinally with uh, Philadelphia. Uh, I have a wife, Julia, who I actually met in Germany. Bagger was probably there. Paul was probably there when I first uh, when I first met her, which was at a beer drinking fest with a, another guy named Ari Shine. Uh, been married to her for actually coming up on 26 years because we were in Belize uh, before COVID hit. We were there President's Day weekend, uh, Brian and his wife and Paul and his wife and me and Yulia. I got two boys. I got a 22-year-old who just graduated college. And as you know, Jamie is a professional poker player, which is a story podcast in itself. Yep. And I got a younger son who's at Northeastern who is starting his, uh, I guess, halfway through his sophomore year uh, up in Boston. Uh, I manage a clean room company, so we build design, engineer, all that fun stuff, uh, critically controlled environments, uh, something like COVID, which is bad for the world, uh, happens to be really good for me. I, I run a lot. I fish a lot. I'm still a car guy, so I'm restoring an 82 VW Vanagon now. So that's kind of my uh, toy. And I got a big, uh, a big dog named Ozzy, named after the, uh, the original Ozzy, the only Ozzy that keeps me company. So that's my uh, my three minute version. And Paul, you, I, I saw you do the the Ozzy. I, I I know that you are a big fan of like heavy metal rock, right? I mean, I, I've seen a lot of posts. You like you go see Kiss, you went Ozzy Osbourne. So give me the lay down of like your tell me where you are in the world, what you do for a living. Family, sure. Yeah. So uh, I'm uh, I'm living in Alexandria, Virginia. Work at the Pentagon. I've been working there. Uh, when I was still in uniform, started working in 2008. And then when I retired, uh, I continued on in the same office uh, in the G3 uh, part of the Army staff. And uh, for a while, Brian Halloran was actually assigned uh, to the same office. And one of our classmates, Mike Eastman, and, and I were in the same, he was, you know, two cubicles down uh, this is, you know, before he made, obviously, we were, we were lieutenant colonels together, you know, so that was, that was probably about 2010 or so when Mike was there. But one thing about working in the building that is uh, unique for me, I think, is that I see a lot of our classmates. Um, you know, everybody who's been assigned to the Pentagon over the last 12 years, I've seen them, and we, there's a pretty good robust network of, uh, of 91 guys that get together, not often enough, but we have a, a semi-routine uh, happy hours at a, a bar, Irish bar across the uh, highway from the Pentagon. Uh, Norm Litterini is really the, the major ringleader for that, but uh, I help him out with some of the comms pieces to try to get word, uh, word of that out to people and everything else. So I have uh, I'm married. I have two sons. Um, one just graduated from Michigan State earlier this year, uh, and the other one uh, just ETSed from his uh, his three-year Army career. So uh, both boys are doing well. So yeah, that's uh, that's about it for me. Nice, Brian. How about you? So as you said, I'm uh, I'm retiring on actually the 31st of, G of January, um, De December, excuse me, December. Um, 
So I'm kind of in the transition process. Uh, I'm married. My wife, Beth, and I have been together about 10 years, um, married for about eight. Um, we're currently in Austin, Texas. Um, my current assignment is I was part of the stand-up of Army Futures Command, which is really the one of the biggest transformations in the Army since TRADOC stood up in 1974. Um, and it's had... Uh, you know, a lot of successes, but a lot of road bumps along the way and a lot of things that, you know, when you do something once every 35 years, uh, you, you don't always capture all the lessons learned. So trying to capture all that and trying to get have things go a little bit smoother. Um, like it's also very. What's that? Like your sex life, Buns. Yes. Yes. Very quick. <laughs> and a lot um, of. So now just kind of trying to figure out what's next. You know, if you remember your time in, you know, the first question you get asked when you're transitioning is what do you want to do? And that's one of those questions you don't get asked much for the whole time you're in. So just trying to kind of work through all that. And uh, I echo what Bagger said, when you're in the Pentagon, you know, when you, especially in the summer, you know, in the transition, when people are moving in and out, you got to kind of budget like an extra 15 minutes between each meeting. Cause you run into all these people you haven't seen in 25 years. Um, but it's, uh, it's great to run into people and great to see people and great to see you, Jamie. Great to see you as well. That's uh, congratulations. And thank you for your service. And, you know, there's obviously a wealth of connections through our classmates that, you know, we can, we can connect you to as well to help kind of figure out that next step in your transition. Um, you know, the, um, one of our podcasts that I had was with our classmate, Matt Lewis, who wrote a book called Mission Transition. Oh, fact, I got it right here. How about this? Like, let me give him a little plug, Mission Transition. And um, he's a smart dude. I have to say, like, you know, you can tell, like, people that are smart. He can really break down, like, a complex problem into, like, nice little chunks that you can kind of read and digest and think through. And he really did a fantastic job on that book. So I highly recommend yeah. a little, a little stat unknown on Matt Lewis. We had his younger brother in our company when he was a plebe and he always sat. I used to know the guy that would design the, uh, the tables. He always sat with Bagger and I, so we could do music trivia with him. Don't know anything else about him other than musical trivia. Cause he was uh, a guitar player, maybe a bass player. That's cool. I didn't realize he had a brother that went there. That's cool. Speak, you know, we, we were talking before. Let's just yeah, digress let's digress for a second because we were talking before we get on this podcast, which like one of the things that's fascinating to me, and I think fascinating to our listeners too, is learning like what's happening behind the scenes. Like Brian, your your description of like, you know, talking to like being in between meetings and seeing all of our classmates in the, you know, in the Pentagon and, and Paul, same thing. Like, you know, you spend this extra 15, 20 minutes because you haven't talked to them for so long and seeing the impact of 91 now all throughout the army. You know, um, Moose George talked about going to a meeting around the table where like five classmates, you know, all of whom were newly pinned on uh, brigadier generals, all each one with a different sort of um, set of, uh, of um, you know, areas of, of, of focus. But we were talking before about the dynamics of how you make up the companies at West Point, right? So uh, another, classmate company mate of yours is Elad Duran, who we're going to eventually have on this podcast. He's agreed to, to, to do the podcast. I know Elad very well because he's local here in the New York area, but we also went to OBC together and 
we've intersected a bunch of times throughout our careers and in life. And um, so I, um, you know, Charles, you're, you are Jewish. Elad is Jewish. And uh, were there other Jewish cadets in Company C3 as well? Ted Permuth in our class, we had three uh, yearlings three cows so a pretty big a pretty big population statistically uh it made no sense there was most of the most of the different year groups that were definitely the ones that were more senior than us the the 90 the 89 and 88 i want to say 89 had like five jewish cadets in c3 and if they weren't in our company they were in a3 or b3 so a huge yeah. amount in first reg in in, uh, in 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 third reg, you know, the first uh, battalion, I guess we were. Where, where were your barracks? Was it like closer to the temple or something? Like what? Was like <laughs> they, they were not. We were no. right right on Eisenhower, where, where the wind blew cold. Mount Sinai. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that that can't be a coincidence, right? It cannot no. be like there were like Company F one. We had zero uh, Jewish classmates in my in our in our class in our and I so it can't be a coincidence um so and you have a theory on that right Charles so I, I have a theory and this is only my own theory but I think there's a lot of fact there and if, if you saw 60 minutes last week they hinted at this but they didn't want to talk about the detail so oddly enough C3 was always considered to be an easier company and Bunzer and I graduated from there. So obviously there's some, there's some facts there. Uh, but so always considered to be third reg was considered to be easy, you know, when compared to like a first reg C3, if you ranked the 36 companies in a row, most people would have put us in the top three or four easiest without any real criteria, but it was just kind of known for that. So there was this guy who was in, Usmay G1 or whatever the group was actually called. His name was Ron Fine, very nondescript gentleman, but always seemed to be kind of the puppet master, if you will, behind the scenes. So in my eyes, and statistically, it totally proves itself out. I always thought, and people always thought, that Ron Fine was going out of his way to put Jewish cadets into third reg, into first battalion, and mainly into C3. Because when I got there as a freshman, so those four classes, I'm trying to think, I'm guessing there were between 12 and 14 Jewish cadets in the company at the time. I don't know what percentage it is. You know, I'm sure we have a quota like everyone else to just to make sure that there's good religious harmony at, at, at good use bay, but there's no way that 12 or 13 or 15 cadets could possibly be in one company. We're just not that much of the population. And as my mom always said, you know, when I told her, I, I thought about going to West Point, she said, Jewish people don't go to West Point. We, we donate to West Point, but we don't go to West Point. So, you know, and there's probably so, some truth behind that. I'm trying to think of the other classmates who I know are Jewish, like Rory Anglin. He was an F. He was an F. So Rory Anglin was not Jewish. Rory Anglin attended the synagogue with us. He was actually Seventh Day Adventist, but it was close enough that that was a good fit for him. 
Okay. All right. So, wow. Something new every day. Yeah. How about how about Brett Luloff? He was. And what company was he in? Don't know. Yeah. See if he like fits the. Yeah, I'm trying to think. I'm trying to think of the rest. I uh, I used well, to have all the rosters on all the Jewish people, but they made me throw them away when I left the army. Right. Um, wasn't uh, Selden in B3? Funky Selden was definitely, yeah. and he was in B3. Yeah. Uh, I'm trying to think. Yeah, Lulov was in G2. He was in G2. Okay. He was in G2. Gotcha. So anyway, but this uh, the the backs the parts of some more recent history with this guy Ron Fine, the guy that Charles was talking about who worked in the Corps Cadets G one, and he probably had some kind of uh, ORSA background or something like that where he was he was you know taking data because a lot of um, another element of cadet company assignments were based off geography. We had. We had four of us from Minnesota inside C3 as well. And then, um, you know, who else? There were a couple yeah, other guys. Of couple... Us that lived within 60 miles. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's Throw, throwing some throwing Bunzer, who's a little farther, but we yeah. had a ton of us very local. driving distance. Right. But anyway, shortly after we graduated, um, I remember hearing rumors or a story somebody told me that ron fine got jammed up and he got in trouble for what he was doing i don't know that there's any truth to that but that, that people found out that he was he was jewish himself and the the story goes that uh someone looked into how he was doing cadet assignments and they found you know you don't have to be real whiz kid to figure it out that the high density of jewish cadets are all going to just a couple you know two or three different companies and i don't know i don't know why he got in trouble for that i don't know i don't see anything wrong with that i mean you got to put people somewhere you know it seems it, to me though like this has got to be like one of the most like highly um most visible uh things that happen before the core comes to be, be, before the cadets come in like who's going to get slotted in one company like you've got you know a certain number of you know, people of color and you're you're trying to make sure that that's well represented across across the core and then you've got women you've got athletes you got prior service you know it, oh, it, another interesting thing is if you think of your prepsters they probably have last names that start around the same part of the alphabet so i so not for us we had bagalka pierce sentmanat so that covers the whole alphabet right well, there well no, no p and s are close to each other well there was also kathy so, ike oh, kathy ike and kathy ike and tracy hedersheit we had we started off with like seven time. or eight seven or eight prepsters which is also a huge percentage mm -hmm. if you I take out our females our jewish people and our prior service there's nobody left then it's me and Lipper. Is <laughs> it two of you guys, right? Right. Just Brian Haller is the only one left. <laughs> yeah, you know, it, it's it is fascinating. Like we had 17 African American female cadets uh, in our class. We graduated nine, but we started with 17. So that was a huge attrition rate, by the way. You can think about that. And two of them were in the same company, B1. 
B1, which was known for running women out of the Corps of Cadets, you know, in prior to this, I mean, like, like they, they, that, that happened a lot. That's why its nickname was Boys One. Exactly. And so they said, if we're going to put one, one African-American female cadet in that company, we better put two. We better make sure that they have somebody that's like, you know, like, an, and, th and this is another fascinating thing I think about too. It's way, it's way different now because there's so many more females, but you guys mentioned you had five females all graduated of our classmates. That's very unusual. Usually there's only four that started a company and maybe three graduate. Well, Jamie, and I'm not sure what it's worth, but we had five females and our company name was the Cox. So right, right there, there's something. <laughs> it's probably not, it's probably not. I don't know what it is, but it's, it's worth mentioning for the audience just to think. That, so, so, so who, who were, who were the five, um, Female class. Chris Burnett, Kathy Ike, Tracy Hedershite, Jen Hankis, and Kara Souls. Boom, now it's effortless. Mm. So one of the things I find fascinating, because if you're dealing with only you know four, maybe five, you damn well better get along with each other if there's only, you know, you got you you can only room with one of those other people for four years. Yeah. You know, you got each other's back, but you're also still a minority. Um, you know, we talked there was a there's a podcast that I talked to uh the four females from my company and we really had a great conversation about what was acceptable in terms of the behavior of men at that time around women which you'd never tolerate today. I mean, you'd never have, they, they, we, we told a story about, you know, in the back of a deuce and half, guys passing a porno magazine around, you know, commenting on this porno magazine in front of Sharon DeCrane. Oh, no, no, actually Sharon DeCrane said, this is actually a story that Jen Bodian uh, talked about in her book. And, and Sharon DeCrane said, yeah, I can remember situations like that. And I felt accepted. I felt like that was a good thing that men could be that way around me because now I was like one of them. And I would never ever think about challenging that type of a circumstance that that was inappropriate. And I think about that now, I was like, my God, that, what, a, what a unique challenging situation that was for our female classmates. Jamie, we used to walk around because my aunt was a very senior person at Penthouse we would walk around in shirts that said, I got my letter printed in penthouse forum and all I got was this lousy t-shirt and variations <laughs> like that. And I would get them in the mail and, and regularly give them out. And it was like a, a matter of pride. But, but nowadays, if, if that shirt was even mailed to you, you'd probably spend uh, 50 hours on the area. <laughs> yeah. So it is, I'm, I'm reading some of the comments here, you know, Jeff Simpson talks about like being, being, a, being a black cadet also require, I mean, you probably had maybe one other African-American uh, classmate, maybe two in your company, if you're African-American. And so, you know, th that whole experience is one that you are, you're guaranteed to be like, like the, you know, the, um, you know, just one or two of, of, of 25 or 30, you're, you're 10%, you're guaranteed to be, you know, that minority person. That's why I think that these, these, um, these programs that we had at the time, like the uh, cultural affairs seminar and, 
whatever other clubs are where we're so important for those kind of like um, like resource groups for people to have that. But I, I, I just, I'd love to like learn more about how they, I know like Mark West worked actually in the admissions department at one point and he said that they labored over these, mixing these cadets a certain way. They'd be, you know, mixing and remixing and trying to balance and optimize like so much. He said, you have no idea how much thought goes into it. Yeah, and keep in mind, it, it, when we were there, it was probably even more important because we, we, we never got mixed up. So if you didn't get the class balance right on day one, you had to live with it for four years. Nowadays with, the, and I can't think of the word, but, but with the, with the mix up after a yearling year, now you scramble. can spin around to scramble. Thank you. you. You could mix up. Okay. This company lost two females. There's X number in the pool. So split them up evenly again, split up these two. Now you can split them up again. But with us, if you didn't get it right before our day, you were living with it for four years. Yeah. And, you know, Jamie was talking earlier about the five women in our company who, and, and, uh, you know, you got to get along with them because you're going to be roommates with them over and over again. Well, there were, I'm not going to point out which relationships, but there, there were a couple, two or three of them, uh, relationships that were, were, were pretty sour. And, uh, so after, after, wow, probably by cow year, it would always be, these two girls would have a room together and these two, and then the, another one would always, you know, you have an odd number. So you're in a three person room where they would put, uh, you'd, you'd have to have a roommate who was in a different class. Well, the four, the four F1 women were like, um, it was like a, like a, a, they had like a pact among themselves. So no matter how much they may have pissed each other off, they were not going to talk badly about each other outside of the four of them, right? They, they we were the there. opposite, Jamie. If you put five of them in a room, two of them would go to the corner and, and, and pop open a, a wine cooler. And, well, one would have a wine cooler, one would have a glass of water and they would have friendly conversation. And, and the other three would literally slit each other's throats in a second, <laughs> or maybe at the time two would ally against the one. But, but, but there were three of them with a lot of personality and it would, man, it, it was brutal sometimes being a guy trying to watch them interact. Well, I don't, I, I, um, and, and there, therein lies sort of the challenge of being like, they say like, if you, until you hit 20% um, of a certain, you know, like demographic, you're, you run the risk of that kind of like intermittent um, relationship. Yeah. And that's something, you know, as, four white guys who went to a school that's you know 80 to 90 percent white guys we never had to think about or deal with until it becomes talked about later on you know yeah i mean totally i, I think now i mean we're all becoming much more i think you know aware of you know these privileges that we all hold and whatnot given circumstances and so um it's interesting to think about and talk about but it'd be a way different thing to to have to live through well, so one Jamie, the other throw in one about more new thing into the mix and throw in the whole gender preference into the equation that we just talked about and then try to sort that out on top of everything else. Yeah, this is why- I was never a thought, but with us. Well, yeah, well, I mean, this is why the leadership in the army today, they're having to deal with all kinds of challenges that we'd never even contemplated, you know? 
Yeah. And real quickly, and you're talking about putting the companies together. Um, so uh, there's a woman from my hometown who's a plebe this year and just some a mutual friend who is a teacher at the high school linked us up and we were emailing back and forth real quick and I was like hey do you know what company you're in because I don't think we found that out until we got there and she's like oh I'm actually I'm going to be in C3 and I was like wow so we started talking and then 72 hours before our day because our day was staggered this year she got a note that she you know you're you now report on this day and you're not in C3 you're going to be in G4 and it's interesting because she's a woman prior service minority and how does that change the dynamic 72 hours out of how they put together the companies? I mean, I don't know if somebody else bailed out or if there was COVID impacts or what happened, but. You know, you um, know that happened to, hey, Buns, you know that happened to me, right? No. Uh, so you remember those pictures we had on our cards that we had to mark as like our first couple of years there where you'd have to, you know, your card would be marked uh, you know, gym or class or unmarked or whatever. Remember those things? Well, there was, there was a spot for a small picture of us. And the, the pictures were taken on our day. Um, and for me, my picture, and it, it had your, it had, you know, name and then 91 and then the company. Well, what, when I picked mine up, when we were getting these pictures taken our day, they had taken a black marker because I was supposed to go to D1 and they took a black marker, a Sharpie and just, you know, blotted it out. And then they were <laughs> handwritten right next to it. It's like C3. So my, the picture I have, and I, I think I have that thing somewhere looks all jacked up, but yeah, I had me going, you know, at least on our day or before our day going to D1, that didn't happen. D1 duck. Yeah. You would have been in my battalion. I was an F1. Yeah. Um, I didn't make the cut. I, I guess, I guess you, you guys had higher standards, so they, they, they realized I couldn't make it. Maybe well, that's why I, they I found out your dad was a minister, and he's like, oh, minister, bring him in, hang, let him hang with the Jewish guys. He'll be okay. <laughs> right. Yeah, you had to carry us for four years. <laughs> sure. So, Paul, you call your old man was a minister? Yeah, he was a Lutheran minister, um, you know, all through... Uh, yeah, all through my youth, obviously, and then, yeah, retired here a few years ago. So, yeah, I have a lot of church in my background. So, did was that is that the kind of thing that that's a full that's a full time gig? That's his job is to be yeah. there. Yeah, and, that was. And then uh, the, the the church group that he worked in uh, also does a lot of charity work, and they had a um, a nursing home as part of the system in this church. And so in the early, somewhere in, somewhere in the mid seventies, we moved, uh, this was inside Minnesota. We moved to the town where this thing was. And he was kind of like the staff minister at this uh, old folks home for about 10 years. So did so you he like- didn't, He didn't really have a, he didn't really have his own church or his own congregation. He was just kind of the staff minister there. I think that puts a lot of pressure on kids. Like when they're the, when they're the, the child of clergy and that clergy is running like a parish or a congregation or whatever, because they're all looking at you to be like yeah. this moral citizen. But then of course you've got that whole dynamic of like wanting to prove yourself. And yeah, I, that's I why people, that's why people like me are generally poorly behaved because they just rebelled all the time, you know, and, and tried to, 
I remember in Footloose it happened the same thing. They used to drive across the bridge and go dancing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Heathens. Exactly. So, so now this is a great segue because talking about you know pressure on kids to to perform well, right? And 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 Charles, you talked about the fact you, you come from you you're you are in an international marriage. Your wife is from Germany, right? Yep. And and, and you're your, your in-laws are still in Germany and they're maybe the stereotypical German, like, you know, very much like um, discipline, hard charging kind of stuff. Uh, and so then your son decided to leave college to go become a professional poker player. So, so I can start before that, Jamie. He, he actually started out with an ROTC scout. So, and he, he has since sworn that he did it just because I pushed him into it, which is bullshit. But anyway, so he did a semester with ROTC and then he, and then he dropped that, which was fine. And then he did a semester uh, as a normal student and started playing poker there. And then he came home, I guess in the summer and, uh, you know, he's home for whatever breaks pretty long, like three months or so. So like two weeks before he's supposed to go back to school, he kind of comes out, you know, like kids that age do, you, you know, you can tell he has something to say, but he's not quite ready to look you in the face and say, I thought hey, that was at Christmas. Hey, Charles, I thought that was at Christmas time. Was it two semesters in or three? I think it was only one. No, it's that he, he did two semesters. Anyway, let's call it a year. Paul may know my kids better than me. So, <laughs> so he, he says, you know, uh, can we talk? And my wife and I are outside on the deck having lunch. So we're like, yeah. So then he springs it on us that he wants to drop out of school and play poker full time. And, and he only plays online. So yes, he's professional, but he only plays online. That That's his little niche at the moment. So you know, like normal parents, I guess, you know, I started yelling and screaming and probably swore. I think my wife started crying, you know, so we went back and forth and got the normal, you know, I'm over 18, you can't tell me what to do. And then we give them the, well, you rely on us for everything financially. So maybe we can't tell you what to do, but we can make it hard for you to do anything, you know, kind of that push and shove that has no, no winning outcome. So we, we kind of ended that conversation and we talked the next day a little, a little more adult. And, and, you know, my wife and I, of course, had spent a lot of that last day talking and said, you know, look, he's going to do it anyway. So, you know, our conditions, if we're allowed to set conditions are, we want him to have a four-year degree. You know, it's hard in this day and age to not have a four-year degree and be successful unless you're in the trades, which are great, but my family's not a trade family. He's not a trade kid. So we said, Zach, we want you to get a four-year degree somewhere. Uh, doesn't matter where, you know, if you don't want to go to Northeastern and spend 38 K every six months, that's fine. We appreciate it. Start a community college. Uh, he, he could go to school for free at Rutgers because he had super, super grades in high school, go online, do something. And, and he thought that was reasonable. So he, uh, he, he applied to Arizona State. 
But of course, he had to go back for a semester. So he, we weren't going to lose that money. So he went back to Boston. And then, of course, about a month into him being up there, and Bagger's right. So, so he, he calls me January, I think, at like 6.30 in the morning. And college kids don't call their, their parents at 6.30 in the morning unless they're in trouble. So From jail. Yeah, well, so he's like, he's calling me, and I can tell he's really revved up. And, I, and I'm like, are you okay? He's like, yeah, I'm okay. I'm like, are you okay? He's like, yeah, I'm quite all right. Like the kids don't talk like that. So I'm like, are you in jail? Cause that's my first reaction. And he's a really good kid. He's like, no. I'm like, are you drunk? He's like, no. I'm like, are you on drugs? He's like, no. I said, did you get laid? <laughs> so I only had four questions and I asked them all. I'm like, okay, I have nothing left. So what happened? And he said, oh, I, I won a big poker tournament. And I won't give the numbers because that's his own business, but he, he won a significant amount of money. Well, actually, this is published information. So I'll have you know, the Hend if you go to the HendonMob.com, you'll see he's, he's got a rank. He's got, he won $20,000 just in July of this past year. I see, I see that. He, I see his revenue. You don't know what he puts in. You only know the, the, the revenue. You don't know the profit. You only know the revenue. I yeah. Think. Well, he had a pretty good July, I saw. He did, did real well online in July, so. Yeah, so so he so he did much 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 better than that, and and at the time, you know, he, he it's all his own money. So he was playing with his bar mitzvah stake and a little bit of work money, like uh, oh, like little Dicky. He he was he he started his career with his bar mitzvah money, so so uh, so he made a ton of money. So that of course solidified his decision, and then he comes home. He comes home for Christmas. Now his uh his commitments done in Northeastern. And then a week later, he's like, Oh, you know, I need to move for tax purposes because he was making real money with, with, with zero costs. So he, he lived in Mexico, uh, in outside of Playa del Carmen for six months. He was in Montreal for a while. He was in Germany. He was in the UK. Uh, and then he kind of thought he was going to give it up. He was close to graduating and get a real job, you know, quote unquote, real job. So he stopped playing for a while. And now for the last four months, he's been, uh, he's been playing hardcore again. He's got a better routine and he, uh, you know, he, it, it's, I, I, when I like to describe it, you know, most people think of kids playing poker, you know, you, you get a cheap cigar and a six pack of beer and maybe you put down 20 bucks and you win some or you lose some, but, but he plays real money. <laughs> he's got a real routine. He, he studies all the time. He's got mentors globally. Like right now he works with a lot with a guy from Israel and they go over hands and situations uh, every day before he plays poker, he does yoga and then he takes a shower and then he meditates. So, so he's got like the whole routine down. So it, it, for, for him, it's a job. He, he studies his profession, just like all four of us probably study or more than some of us to, uh, to, to make himself successful. But yeah, and for a while, I think it took me three or four months to tell my parents because, you know, when we grew up, you know, in the 70s and 80s, for Paul, I guess it was the 50s. <laughs> but when we grew up, you know, you go to work, you put on a shirt and a tie and you sit in an office for eight or 10 hours a day and you work hard. And three years later, you hopefully get a promotion and you just kind of do that. So 
it was hard for me as a relatively conservative guy to accept like that you could do a job online and, and his work outfit is boxer shorts and every once in a while he puts a t-shirt on like it was kind of hard to accept that so it took us a while to tell our, my parents it took my wife even longer to tell her uh you know a, a little more conservative traditional german parents but r- right now we we, we accepted we, we openly talk about it it's a good thing you know and as long as there's guys like me that are not going to be playing that seriously just you know having a couple of drinks throwing a hundred bucks in at an online uh, tournament and they just destroy us right these professional the professional kids that are doing well and that's why he loves being in jersey because jersey has a really nice he used to play offshore stuff and get paid in bitcoin and and all, all these gray sites but but now he's back in jersey and it's all legal and legit and exactly what you said jamie is why he loves online poker mm-hmm. he's like dad there's tons of suckers that will go out there and and pay fifty dollars you know fifty dollars for their texas hold'em buy-in you know or a hundred or five hundred whatever the tourney is and they have the money so if they lose five hundred or a thousand or whatever it is it's not a big deal and and, and at the end it, it gets to 12 or 16 or 20 of us that have skill. And, and then we see how much we each went. So thank you, Jamie, for uh, contributing to Zachary's uh, livelihood. I'm quite sure I've contributed quite a bit. So, um, well, that's, that's, that's kind of interesting. And also, you know, breaking the news to your, to your German uh, in-laws. But what, so how often do you see them? Do you go over there for, for Christmas? Do they come over? So to see early on, you know the technology now of course is life-changing and it's it's i think it's cheaper for them to call here than it is for me to call connecticut you you know so so when we first got married it was two or three cents a minute so and and of course we we didn't have the the money we had back then you know junior captains weren't getting paid so much so you know my wife would regulate herself to 10 or 12 minutes a week she talks to her parents every day we, we finally got my uh, my mother-in-law, Margaret, on WhatsApp. So now there's some video stuff. We, we see them probably every year religiously and sometimes twice a year if there's an event, you know. And, and, and she, my, my wife, on top of everything else, is also an only child. So I, I stole her away when she was super young and moved her. Not only... How did that go? I mean, listen, you, you, know, you fall in love with your wife. You're like, by the way come back to America. Like, how does that go down? That's got to be a challenge. Well, not just America. I, I was at Fort Lewis. So it was, it was the West coast. It was all the way across the country. So we weren't married when she came over. So she came over as my girlfriend and she lived with me and my roommate, uh, uh, Harry Ari Shine, who was <laughs> a, a little short, another Jewish guy, of course. So I, I have the corner on Jewish guys in the military. So, so Ari and I roomed together and Yulia, Yulia moved in with us and then she was there on a six month visa and uh, we, we ran down to Vegas and got married. But yeah, it, it was easy for me. I didn't put too much thought into it. I guess it was harder for her and her parents, but she, she was pretty, pretty, pretty strong willed as most, most German women are and we're still married. So that's yeah, better than she- most can say. She is the hardcore ultra runner. She's the one who got you into this crazy ass stuff. I mean, when I, like when I think of Charles LaPellis that I knew at West Point, you know, you're very athletic and you could you could run or whatever. 
but you only ran when you had to run. Like the, this Absolutely. Was, Not even when I had to, I would still find a way to get on profile yeah. Or come right. up with some reason not to run. And like when, when I saw that you signed up to run a 100 mile race, I said, there is something has happened in this man's life that has changed the way that he is looking at this. So tell me how this whole thing, how you got the idea, how she started doing it. Like, what so we- I'm guessing she started eight or 10 years ago. And, and it was just kind of, I don't know how old she was back then. I guess I can't say, or I'll, I'll, I'll get divorced. But it's just kind of like I'm getting a little older and maybe I, maybe I need to lose some weight or stay in shape. So let me go run it. So that was like a two, three mile thing, whatever. And, and we had a friend, uh, a guy named Mike, who put on a 5K run uh, to raise money for one of his daughter's friends who, who died in high school. So, so I became a sponsor for that for a couple of years and we would run it. And she slowly, like everything, got more and more serious and then she totally got hooked. And, and I think she would admit this too. I don't think I'm making it up. W- one year for, for Christmas or Hanukkah, uh, she got a very, very early version of a GPS watch. So, so mind you, this is before cell phones at GPS, but she got the Timex triathlon, which was a giant thing. It probably weighed a pound, although of course it didn't, but a giant thing that actually had a GPS in there so you could record your miles. And it had some basic calculations It probably gave pace and you could connect it. Of course, Bluetooth didn't exist. So you could hook it up through the cables into a rudimentary program and track your mileage and all that stuff. And she got that and then like everything changed. So the 5Ks became 10Ks, 10 milers, half marathon. She started to do road marathons. And then she saw a posting on Facebook when it was young uh, about a person in the area that was looking for another person to run a trail with her. And we had never- all the time, you're not running, right? You're just- uh, no, no, I'm, I'm not running at all. I, I ran the 5Ks just because I was a sponsor and I figured I was still in good enough shape to, to run a 5K. Right. So she comes back from the trails and she's totally loving it. And there's a good local organization that puts on trail races. So she's going there. And then she comes back and she's like, oh, I just signed up for a 50K. And of course, at the time, I didn't quickly re- know what 50K was. So I'm like 50K times 0.6. I'm like, oh, shit, that's longer than a marathon. I didn't know people could do that. You, you, you know, you watch the early writings, you know, Hey, hon, won't your uterus fall out if you run that far? <laughs> you know, because because there, there's theoretically some science behind that, although it's obviously not true. But so after every one of these events, she would come back and an easy 50K became a hard 50K, became a 50 mile or became a nine hour, 12 hour endurance race. And then she signed up for a hundred miler. Well, hold on, hold on. Let me just ask you a question because the races take a lot of time, like a lot, like what, eight, nine hours, but training takes a lot of time too. I mean, like a lot, like, like she goes out on Sunday morning and she doesn't come back until the afternoon, right? Like you're like, yeah, we probably each run, you know, three days a week during the week. And that's probably a six to 10 mile run and then two longer runs on the weekend. So 
and depending where we are in a training cycle, that long run, it might be a 10 miler and then a 15, it might be a 40 miler or a 50 miler as a training run, depending on, you know, where we are ramping up or plateauing or tapering a little bit before an event. So yeah, it's, it's a lot of, it's a lot of training time. So, so, so she did a hundred miler like what, one or two years ago, I think, right? You did one three years ago. And actually Brian Halloran fits into this story because she picked a hard one to do first. I, up in here. I got him into this. That's the only thing I'm going to take credit on is uh, if it wasn't for me, Charles would not be doing hundred mile races and I'll let you take it from there. Charles. true. So she signed up to do a hundred mile race in Bryce Canyon. So, so, so outside the national park in Utah. So when you're in South Jersey, I run 10 miles and I get 150 feet of elevation gain. When you go out to the West or, or where I ran my race, you could do a hundred mile race and do 15,000 feet of gain, 20, 30, big numbers. So she picks a hard race. Uh, Brian and his wife, Beth, who are running at the time more than me, they're like, you know, we would love to come out. We'll hang with you, Charles, while you support her, and we could each run some. So that's awesome because now for the last 50 miles or so of my wife's race, her first one, she's going to have a friendly face. So, so all good, all perfect. I got all the logistics planned. Uh, you know, how much do you drink? How much do you eat? What's going to be in your bags? My wife's got the plans, and I'm the logistics coordinator. And I guess it was four days before I get a, I think it was Brian's wife, Beth, who texted and she doesn't text me that often. So a text from her is not a common thing. Maybe it was my first one ever. So I don't know if it said call me or what. So, so her and I talk and Brian's in the hospital four days before the race. So he so much didn't want to do this, even though he said he did, that he tried to fake appendicitis it got so bad that it turned into real appendicitis and then some severe case where they took out part of his intestine, maybe his colon. But how long were you in the hospital for, Brian? Six days at Fort so Belvoir. So he was Good in the times. hospital for six full days. Beth was still going to come out. And I'm like, Beth, I appreciate it, but your relatively new husband is in the hospital. You probably need to be one. She's like, no, I'm coming out. Julia needs me. I'm like, that's cool. So she winds up not coming out, which I expected. So the three runners, we were going to do, I don't know, maybe 40 or 50 miles to three of us, but I was going to do the last leg, which was eight miles. Cause I wasn't a runner at all. And Beth was at the time she, she was doing like training up or doing a road marathon. So she was in decent shape. Brian was running. So they would each do 20 miles or so. And I would do eight or 10 at the end when my wife is, you know, barely running, just trying yeah. to move forward. Yeah, just the survival shuffle. Right. So, of course, they drop out of me, and I do 35 in that race. And then I'm like, oh, if I do 35, I should probably do more of these. And then her next race, I did, I did less, and then I did more the one after. Paul came down to that one, and after seeing her do three, I'm like, shit, you know what? I'm running more and more now. I should probably see if I could do one of these. So she did a 200 mile event in Washington. She didn't finish that one. So her and I both failed. I tried a hard 100K, but I came back and signed up for a 120 mile race. Cause of course, if you can't run 65 miles, 
what you should do is sign up for 120. Right. You should just double it and try to do you that. That's a smart, that's a smart move, Charles. So I did a race in, or in the last day in January, 120 miles in Florida. And I had some bad knee time. So I had to tap out after being a pussy after 85 miles. She finished that one. And then I came home and signed up for a, a much harder hundred miler. Well, hold, hold on. So these, I'm covering a lot of miles here quickly. These things that you sign up for, like these races, they, they, I guess I, I, I know nothing. I mean, I, I run the army 10 miler and I run like occasionally I run like a half marathon and they're very well advertised. I've never seen these hundred and 200 mile races or whatever they are. Right. But yeah. So, so they're, they're, it's like anything. It, it, it's a fringe group, uh, a, a, a wonderful group of people. And there's it's a cult kind of a cult you could say but but there's websites that have the races there's facebook groups so i i, I could go on today i'm already like literally four days after i finished this one i was looking for one you know one to do in, in q1 next year because you, you kind of get hooked the adrenaline is uh, is crazy yeah i kind of never got hooked i ran one marathon i said i'd never do it again and i've kept my promise so jamie i've never run a road marathon so I, I i hate running on the road i do it just for training all my races are in the woods in the mountains that's what so i like i was looking you're wearing regular sneakers for these things right you're not wearing like hiking boots or anything you're wearing regular sneakers. they're trail running shoes from 10 feet away they look like running shoes when you get up close you can see a more aggressive sole uh, they're a little sturdier, but at the end of the day, they're definitely not hiking boots. Are they, how how long are they good for? I mean, you, you can't you can't. You get, so I, I I put on between three and four hundred miles on a pair. So this pair that you just wore last so week. a weekend. Yeah, a weekend. Yeah, my, my wife just finished a three hundred and fourteen mile race. So she literally started with brand new shoes, and I think she threw them out at the end of the race. Wait, so she ran three hundred miles. Three. She ran 314 miles across Tennessee. It was Total a six. It was a six-day race. Yeah. Well, it was ten days. She did it in six. Right. But totally unsupported on the road. So you could you could go to convenience stores. People have little tents set up in their front yard saying "Welcome, racers." People stop by with coolers or give you something out of out of their lunch bag. But totally unsupported. Whatever's on your back plus whatever whatever you can buy with a credit card so did you sleep at all during the 100 miles that you just did last weekend no i did not i i thought i would uh i actually only hallucinated a few times which is a good story but i, I thought i would have slept but honestly i'm not that fast a runner so i i can't afford to be not moving forward for you know a 15 or 30 minute nap is that's all that you rest for 15 or 30 minutes when, when those things happen? If I would have slept, it would have been a 15 or 20 minute nap. I would have got to an aid station where I see Paul or, or Bunzer or my wife and said, Hey guys, I'm totally out of it. Wake me up in 15 minutes. And they probably would have not listened to me and woken me up in 20, but I'm right on the edge of, of finishing a race on time. So I run a hundred miles, which is more than most, but I'm far from fast. And I got some some knee injuries, so I, I just can't afford to sleep. And actually, for the 34 hours and 10 minutes and 13 seconds of this race, I uh, I, I never felt fully exhausted. I actually felt a lot better than I thought I would have. So, Paul, you ran a lot of these races. Uh, you did a lot of the training runs with 
uh, Charles, right? I saw that. Yeah, they- yeah. So I, uh, not many of them, but I did run uh, the one race that Charles was talking about that his wife did, which she did a hundred miler, the grindstone one. I think that was two years ago, Charles, wasn't yep. that 18? Yep. So uh, yeah, I ran, I ran with her that day, but that was a weird one. She started at night. She started at 6 p.m. So they have to, you know, of course, run through the night, run through the next night. And then she finished up at 6 a.m. And that time I ran about 15 or 16 miles with her. That That was a good one, Jamie. That was a super hard race in in Central Virginia Mountains. And and, and I picked out a route for Paul. Who, who, who was helping me support and helping me run. And I looked at him and said, oh, I got you or the really easy leg. So I was hoping Paul would do, I think, 10 or 12, and I would do 10 or 12, and then Paul would do six or eight, and I would do six or eight. So I, I, I'm with her, and he met her at the 50-mile point. So I, I'm with her on and off for – the first 50 miles and I probably see her every six or eight miles at, at what's like called a, an aid station. Is there a support car that's running alongside you jump in this car? So there's no support car, but there's aid stations. So an aid station, it's, it's, it's like a canopy tent, a 10 by 10 canopy. Yeah, it, look, it looks like a poor there. man's tailgate. A poor man's tailgate. Perfect. They have, the cash a site. you know, they have calories, They'll make some grilled cheeses, some quesadillas. Sometimes they'll have energy drinks. They'll have water. They have a first aid kit and sun lotion and just some basic stuff. Because if not, if you're carrying 100 miles worth of water and food on your back, all of a sudden you're running with a 30, 40-pound pack. So uh, I see her every 8 or 10 miles. Uh, I'm supplementing what that aid station has. Uh, I'm in the car. If she, like for the 200 mile race, I rented a minivan, so I had a, I had a blanket back there and pillows, and I had a lot of stuff. For the shorter races, I have a change of clothes if she wants. Maybe she's got some special food. I got a spare pair of shoes, but 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 it's basically just a duffel bag. So yeah. I'm with her until mile uh, 35. I run back because I'm at the end of the race, this one is an out and back. You go zero to 50, turn around and go 51 to 100. I run back and get Paul, drive all the way back again. And then an hour later, she comes in and that's where he kind of picks her up and runs with her. Yeah. This last weekend, this this last weekend I ran with, well, Yulia and I and Bunzer all ran with Charles and uh, all like the last part, the last day. And I ran 18, what, 18 and a half miles. Yep. But you know, at that, at that stage for Charles, it was not running. I mean, it was, you know, at most it was a, at the fastest would be an airborne shuffle. Right. But now, so it, and it's trail running for the most part, right? I mean, it's not, there's not too much road work. Road, yeah, this you know. race, this race was 102 and a half miles. And it had maybe eight miles on hard pack gravel or hard pack dirt roads, and everything else was single track. How many people? Like what I like is I like to run technical trails, you know, up and down the mountains. How many people ran in that in that race? 
So I think 210 or so were supposed to toe the line. Uh, probably 20 or so of those don't show up just like anything. There's a last minute event. And I think 112, 120 or so finished. How so much you pay? You get, a, you get a lot of people that, that don't finish. How much you pay to, to, to do the race? Uh, probably two to $300 is an average amount. And, and what you get for that is you get all this aid at the aid stations. Mm -hmm. And I eat a lot, so I'm throwing down 10 or 12,000 calories, uh, a super nice sweatshirt, uh, a buff. When you finish, you get a belt buckle, which is kind of the, it's a separate story. These races started with horses, 100-mile races. And then the guy's horse in California, his horse got injured a week before the race, and someone said, why don't you just run it? And the guy said, yes. Just, so it's a big gaudy belt buckle and, and I, I should have it down here. I don't, I can send you a picture. Oh, you I, got, I got the picture yeah. of you holding it up on that. So, so really what you're running for is that belt buckle, which sounds silly and stupid and it is, but that's what you're running for. So, um, so Brian and Paul, you guys were part of this whole training team to be there the whole time. Did you ever think to yourself, is this guy crazy? Like what, first of all, What's the likelihood 30 years ago that you would have said, of all my company mates, this is the guy that's going to run 100 mile, 100 mile races? Yeah, probably close to zero. So the other thing, the other thing unique about Charles and me is that we both branched armor out of school and we go to, we PCS to Germany together. We wound up as platoon leaders in the same tank company. Wow. For, yeah. So, so, you know, we were never roommates at school, but you know, here we are platoon leaders together and we were, and we shared an apartment uh, in Germany too. At so armor, armor OBC. Pardon me. And you were all, were you in the same armor? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. We were, we were all, we were, yeah, we were in the same armor OBC class uh, with, you know, all sorts of our classmates. Uh, Kevin Banks. Did, Pardon me. Did Montgomery was in that class. Charlie Costanza. Uh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. I'm pretty sure that Montgomery and Charlie were, were in that same class. Randy Christ and John Sharp, I remember, were two of the, and Hairball. Yeah. Yep. yeah. We, had, Alex, we had a good drinking company. Alex Lind. Yep. <laughs> so, but no, it, I mean, uh, no, I mean, it, it, armor lieutenants generally run, you know, four miles a year two APFTs and that's about it. So no chance, chances of him doing that were about zip. We actually were joking. I think Charles was probably at mile 40 or 45 at this point. And we were kind of leaving at about two 30 in the morning to go out to the aid station where I was going to link up with them. I was like, you know, think of the odds we would have got on the first of June, 1991, that I would still be in the army. Charles would be running a hundred mile race on this day. And the bagger had uttered a phrase that I never thought I would hear out of his mouth. He's like, Hey, Yulia, can you toss me the keys to the Porsche? Right. <laughs> yeah. Bunzer was in our brigade in Germany too, but uh, the way our brigade was situated, uh, he was in the FA battalion. He was up in Bamberg, which was about 10 K's North of us. Yeah. 
So let's 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 go back to the West Point stories, going all the way back to the beginning. Like, you know, Charles, you you grew up in in Connecticut, uh, and what made you you say something funny here that you what made you want to go to West Point was that you wanted to be a mercenary. That was your that was your goal. That's you thought going to West Point was going to allow you to be a mercenary. Yeah, so. True? I, I used to always watch the war movies with my dad and my dad was always a defense contractor, but his, his stint in the army was when he got kicked out of ROTC at NYU for not shining his shoes. But, but two of my favorite movies at the time were the dogs of war and the wild geese, which were just two good hardcore mercenary movies. And I just always wanted to be a mercenary. It seemed like a cool way to make a buck. You know, you get to kill people in foreign lands so I had this revel revelation that I should go to West Point. I had never been there before. And I was pretty close to my grandfather, Aaron, and he, he seemed to think West Point was good. So between his, uh, his peaceful cajolings trying to get me to go and, and my want to be a mercenary was kind of a slam dunk. I, the the, the uh, mercenary story that Charles says is exactly right because I remember we were in the same B squad too. So I remember like the first day, uh, you know, our day or a day after, you know, sitting around with our squad leader and everybody was supposed to talk about themselves and introduce themselves and, 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 and tell everybody why they decided, why they chose to apply for West Point. And, and, and I'd been, I had been prior enlisted. I went to prep school, you know, and, and so here's, here's this 18 year old knucklehead. It might've even been on your birthday. My 18th birthday, of course. My birthday yeah. was July 2nd. So the yeah. day after our day. So I'm like, so who's this knucklehead, a brand new 18 year old kid who just stood up and said, I joined West Point to be a mercenary. <laughs> and it was me. Yeah. Yeah, you, I remember there was also something you said about reading Soldier of Fortune magazine. I can't remember. That's, that's the thing. I remember Soldier of Fortune. Yeah, yeah, so you put it all together, and obviously it's it's the only choice. <laughs> right. West Point's well known for its mercenary corps. And I remember, too, that one of the other prior service guys who uh, left, I think, after plebe year, Jose Seminat, when he would hear Charles say that his blood pressure would go up to like 4 billion over, you know, a million and a half and just lose his mind. Well, probably because he thought Charles was just making it up. But in fact, that's really what Charles was thinking. My driving force. Right. Uh, that's so, crazy. So Charles, you show up So July 2nd, your birthday. So you, your 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 second day at West Point's on your birthday. You say you want to be a mercenary. Who else was in your squad with you? What, what what's what's memorable about about that plebe year and about that about that summer that that you have? Well, my favorite story, which I just can't tell on this podcast because it's too totally inappropriate. It is. It is. It is very inappropriate. But yeah, I, I actually I can't, I can't even hint at it because I'll, I'll wind up telling the story and then you'll have to blurt it out. Nope, save yourself. No. I'll, I'll tell you, I'll tell you, I'll tell you live one day, Jamie, over a beer or a bourbon. All right. Uh no, we we had a, a an interesting hodgepodge of people. Yeah. We had uh I'm trying to think well, Elad, Elad, you're because the females for rooming base were 
three in one squad and two in the other, right, Paul? Yeah, yep. But but yeah. we had some was Silver with us? Yeah, Jeff Silver who who left uh who is also somewhere, Jewish. Somewhere, yeah, another, yes. Another, another uh he was a 50 50. Yeah. Yep. And uh let's see, we had uh, well Eli Duran was in our B squad. Neary? Dave Neary was. Yeah. Uh it was you. Oh, Chris Farrell. Hadley and Grogan. Hadley and Grogan, both of them got out in the in during Beast. Uh, yeah, my roommate was Chris Farrell, and uh, you Glenn had Glenn McCrill. Glenn McCrill, Dave Neary, Elad. Uh, there was a shorter blonde dude who quit Lee later in plebe year. Thomas Thompson. 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 Yeah, Lee Thompson. Yeah, we, we had a poor graduation rate. Were we under 50% in that B squad? Probably, yeah. We ran them out. How about Timmy Hanratty? Was he was he was in your company too, right? Oh yeah, yeah. He was. Yeah. Uh, he and I were actually. He's a he's a Jersey boy. He and I were actually. We knew each other uh, before we went to West Point, and uh, he's actually a state trooper now. Uh, a New Jersey state. Uh, wasn't his brother killed on duty? Tragically, yes. I thought I knew that. His brother died. His brother died. If you ever go on Route seventy eight, uh, Route seventy eight West. Up by Berkeley Heights, you'll see there's a memorial to, to Tommy Hanratty that's there. Mm -hmm. And uh, I just I saw like this front page Star Ledger when he went into the academy. It said like the younger brother of of and I, for all for all I know he's still still in the state police. I think yeah. I lost lost touch with him. But one of my favorite Tim Hanratty stories is has Chris Farrell involved. Farrell decided to buy one of these big obnoxious alarm clocks you know like the ones that look comical with the big the big bells on the top and he brings this brings this clock back and uses that for his alarm clock and Tim Hanratty had a he had a temper and so one morning when that thing went off it was just a little bit too early for Tim to have to deal with he threw open his window and he threw the clock off the fourth out of the fourth floor window of Eisenhower Hall out onto the apron. And of course it shattered. So we go down for breakfast formation, you know, like 15, 20 minutes later, and there's a bazillion pieces of clock all over the apron. He's lucky they didn't hit anybody. Imagine if he hit somebody with that. Oh, I know. Yeah. Because yeah, it was a blind toss. It wasn't like, let me look out the window and try to get it in between people. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh. So, so Charles, tell, I, mean, I know, I know that uh, Timmy Hanratty, he got a, he got a drinking slug for having a few cocktails in the room back in the day, if I remember correctly. Was he part of your little, uh, your little, your little slug here? You got like 115 hours for um, <laughs> drinking in the room. Uh, well, so, so the 115 is an aggregate. But what happened to me, and I was really railroaded. I think I don't understand all the legal ramifications. I should, I should look into it. So. Rad Wanick, I guess there's a statute of limitations. I can talk about this now, Bagger? Yes, yeah, you're, you're legally clear now. Okay, so Brad Wanick had a car on post, Cal Year. So. No, it was up in Pilot. It was not on post. It was correct, off post. Correct. It was in Pilot. Yeah, the Pontiac dealership. So, and I, of course, had my house, you know, pretty close. So I was a regular user of the car. And my parents had a ski house on Hunter. So, so I had two houses close. 
So, so I would regularly take the car and, and sometimes women of good repute or, or ill repute with me. And I would regularly be tasked to, to bring back booze. So I was making a trip and I think I was coming back from my house and I had whatever booze the various people had asked me to bring. And, and Brad and I were roommates at the time. So we had a yearling in the room who I was, we'll use the term dating. That sounds okay. We were yeah. dating and we were all drinking together and it, it kind of got worse, I guess, or, or, or it almost got worse. And she freaked out like right before taps because she was hammered and she ran out onto the plane. So Brad and I ran out to try to get her. So of, of course we, we missed taps. So we were out of our room after taps. So eventually we, we got back to our room with her. We found her and then we had a girl in the room with the door closed. Uh, we were clearly drunk because there were booze bottles out in the room. And then it, other people were brought into it that I had brought booze to. So they tried, this is where I was railroaded. They tried to get me for trafficking to minors, but I was a minor myself. <laughs> so a, a whole railroaded amount of, uh, amount of things just kind of kept on piling up. I think that was all payback after the five, 10 and under basketball scandal. It still is limited to talk about. I'm one of the tallest people, Jamie, ever to play five, 10 or under basketball at West Point. And I actually <laughs> played somehow for three seasons. So I, I was in, there was a lot of sketchy things in C3. I think Ron Fine deleted my intramural basketball record so I could play a third year. Yeah. You know, I, I forgot that we had five, 10 and under that was a, uh, the, the, they had two different levels of basketball. Yes. I forgot about that. That's that's funny. Five, ten. And when you're a shade under six feet and you're playing five ten or under basketball and you have some skills, it becomes a good sport for you. Yeah. <laughs> Especially when you're wearing those orange Converse sneakers that they issued us to for specifically for five ten and under basketball. Were, weren't they Adidas? No, they were Nike. They were, were they Nike? Yeah, they no, were Nike. With stars and bars? No, no, no. no. They, These were the orange no. pair because they were testing out what obviously was a successful test, the early air cast. Uh, I thought so they were knee braces. Us, no, it was an air cast. No, it was ankle, ankle braces. That was an, oh, no, yes. they, had, they had knee braces for football. I remember that. You're right, you're right. Yep, so they, for basketball, so we all got the orange high top leather Nikes, really nice shoes, but a funny yeah. color. And then half of us got the air casts. By the way, they still do all that shit on cadets, all that like uh, experimental, uh, uh like um athletic devices because um this guy that works for me his wife works up there and she's uh i don't know phd uh physical therapist type and they're constantly like trying out new shit on cadets they're like still most like of that shit is actually driven by aliens <laughs> and i don't want to go into it on this podcast because i have a an, an alien podcast tomorrow all right i, I got <laughs> but, but most of it is actually still influenced by that <laughs> so so you, how many so you guys chose to go armor uh and brian you're fa yeah uh, field artillery so so what what uh did anybody else go um go armor from from your company that you guys were in uh obc with yeah we had uh kevin banks uh before he became a doctor and jim uh, Shermer. yeah and uh I think that was it. I think those were the only four armor 
yeah. But uh, other guys, other branches, like, pardon me? Three of the four did their 20 years. Yeah. Yeah, how many, how many career, how many, actually, I can pull this up. I have these statistics here, let me see. Yeah. Like eight or so? That are, that or that did 20? Yeah. Probably. Dave Neary is an Army reservist still. Carousel's yeah, brigade command now. Yeah, Carousel's is getting ready to retire finally. Wow. I would also bet, Jamie, looking at those statistics, if the people that stayed in 20 or longer, other than Bagger in our company, you wouldn't have picked those people to stay in 20. That's usually the case. You know what's interesting? I have found that not that there's a like there's not a wide distribution of of career army officers some companies have a lot some companies don't have very many at all you guys seem to have about the average i'm counting them up right here uh 20. yeah jim Shermer just retired a couple of years ago yep farrell farrell is still, still in I think Phil Belmont did his 20 as well. The Shermer, Souls, Neary, McGrill. Yep. Um, Kurtz. Yep. Yeah. Kurtz did, yeah, Kurtz did 20. McGrill just retired a couple of years ago. Paul Cusick. Yep. yep. Uh, Brian, Chris Farrell, and Paul. Yeah. And two doctors, at least two doctors. Yeah. Yeah, that's about average. Like, like I, I think eight, eight or so is probably eight. About one third of our class were career, and uh, but but certain certain companies like company, I think A four, is like seventy five percent of them were uh, career, and uh, yeah, and like my company, company F one, I think only twenty percent uh, were career, and so it, it's definitely not a. Uh, it, there's there's. There's definitely some spikes here and there. It'd just be fascinating to sort of like peel that back further and say, why, you know, why did this group, more of them go career off, you know, be career or not? So, but, um, you know, the, the armor, I had a couple of classmates, a couple of company mates went armor too. And that would have just been a party, you know, and the guys that went there. So Brian Sharp, Randy Chris, Jim Montgomery, uh, were, Chuck Pochet was armor. Yeah. Uh, so those, that, that must have been a, a fun time. Oh, yeah. Very it was... regularly, and maybe all OBCs are the same, but there were three or four bars we would go to, and you would regularly have 20 or 25 of us at these bars. You know, yeah. We used to very regularly, because OBC is kind of a joke, you know, we, would, yeah. we would drink drink before classes. Like yeah, armor, armor Basic. Yeah, I think Armor Basic was one of the... the easier ones and, you know and and i remember where we lived um <clears throat> there were three buildings formed a triangle and there was a, a common area out in, in the midst of this and somebody would always get tasked on thursday to start walking around collecting money and guys would chip in you know five ten bucks or whatever someone would go buy a keg and bags of ice and they would put the they would just we'd stage the keg in the middle of the this triangle uh you know until it finally got kicked probably sometime sunday afternoon 
and that didn't work out as well. We, when we tried to do it in the day room on plea parent weekend either, that, that didn't go over as well. <laughs> right. <laughs> Harder to get ice. <laughs> That's right. So there's Charles, no ice, there's no ice in the mess hall. So Charles, you got out as a, as a captain after. Yeah, I did my, my standard five-year commitment. And then I think I did six or seven months on top of that, just to, just to get my shit in order. So what was that like for you transitioning out? Like what, what, what was the, so, what was the experience? Like? I, I guess it was, it, it was kind of interesting. I, I was newly married. So, so I had, you know, that was kind of the stress was getting the job and getting benefits. Other than that, it, it wasn't hard. You know, those JMO recruiting firms just totally suck you up. So it's easy to get interviews. There's plenty of companies that, that love the, uh, the five or six year West Pointers. So it wasn't hard to find a job. It was hard for me to find the right one. I, I did a, a six month stint and then a one year stint and kind of bounced around a while before I uh, found something I was good at. But the, the transition, you know, again, other than having a, a young wife and having to figure that stuff out was pretty straightforward, I think. Maybe I got lucky or, or maybe it is just kind of easy. And Paul, you said for you, it was really easy because you just went like right yeah. at doing your job, right? Yeah, I uh, I went from, see, um, yeah, when I was retiring, uh, my boss was a civilian. And that's one weird aspect about the Army staff that uh, a lot of people don't know. Uh, I certainly didn't until I got to the Army staff is just how my chain of command from being a lieutenant colonel you know, working for a, a two-star that you have uh, a, a number of civilians in between me and the general officer leadership. So uh, my, my branch chief was leaving the job about the same time I was retiring. And uh, so he said, he, he told me, he goes, hey, I'm leaving. They're going to post the job up on USA Jobs uh, in probably a month. And if you wanted to apply for that, uh, you could. And, and so, yeah, I, I, I did all of that and successfully navigated all of that crap. And uh, they hired me. And so I got out of the army on a Wednesday. I remember Charles was up in Bethesda uh, like Thursday night or something like that of that week. Buffalo Wild Wings. What's that? At Buffalo Wild Wings. No, I think it was, uh, what was that other place we used to go up to in Bethesda, Charles? Oh, Rock Bottom Brewery. Rock yes. Bottom, yes. Nice. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, my, my, my time out of the Army was all of four days, and then I came back in on Monday, sworn in as a Department of the Army civilian, and I went right to my cubicle, and the same stuff that I was working on last week, I was still working it. So, yeah. You didn't even easy. have to change those... Uh, jokes you have on the locker right. in your magnet your vikings paraphernalia yep yeah all my all my vikings crap was still up wow bunch of got booted for that oh he's back and it's been 10 years doing that job basically right uh yeah uh now a dozen yeah a dozen years wow, wow. yeah but i i really like it i like the people that uh you know i i supervise six or seven lieutenant colonels uh, on a day-to-day -day basis. And uh, it's fun. 
it keeps me close to the army, obviously. And like I said earlier, you know, you walk the halls of the Pentagon, you run into, you know, your B squad leader, you know, the, the guy, you know, just all sorts of folks that you would, you would never expect to see. And so like, uh, yeah, it's good. I like it. And Brian, you're you're looking at uh, you're looking at your transition coming down here in a few more months, huh? Yeah, and you know my story in the army is kind of a hybrid of Charles and, and Bagger because I was I was field artillery and doing that, and uh, when the majors board came out, um, they branched some people in functional areas, and I look across the list and my name's on it, so I'm excited, and it says FA50, and I say, what is an FA50? It turns out it's called force management and it's kind of like the business, how the army runs at the strategic level, like the, all, all the funding, the size of the army, what types of units, global force management of what units go in and out of theater and all that stuff. So I've been doing that for about the last 10 to 15 years. And like Bagger alluded to earlier, once uh, at one point there was Bagger's Cube, there was another one, Mike Eastman. And then across the road to back was me. So we had a fairly big presence in a short period of time um, there. So yeah, I'm uh, transitioning really is the beginning of the year. Um, currently in Austin. So we're kind of looking in Austin, maybe DC, maybe North of DC. Um, so there's we'll lot, see what happens. There's a lot happening there in Austin. Austin is just such an awesome place to be. Such a cool, such a cool area of the country. It really is. It's been uh, it's been interesting being down there in COVID um, because, you know, some of the stuff we do is, you know, is on the Cipernet or classified. So we a few people had to go in and there were days I was walking. We live downtown and the building we work in is downtown. There were days I would walk in and I kind of felt like Will Smith and I am legend. The only thing I was missing was the German Shepherd because there was literally nobody out. Um and then you'd go in there, you'd do what you had to do, and you wouldn't see another human being. It's just crazy. There's a little bit more going on down there now, as you've probably seen on the news. But uh, Austin's a great area when, when everything's hopping. That's wild. Well, congratulations on your upcoming retirement. And make sure you keep us all posted on uh, you know, how we can be uh, a support structure for you in, in going through this transition. It's, uh, I'm sure it's ominous you know, after 30 years looking at the, making that, that move. But at the end of the day, you've got this network of, of all of us to, to, to be supportive and to be a force multiplier for you. No, thanks. We were joking about this when we were in Tennessee for Charles's races, you know, for somebody who's been getting out next year for 30 years, it's uh, proving a little more daunting than I uh, expected. But he's got a good resume writer. Nice. So Charles, I, mean, I, I told you the time was going to fly by. Here we are we're talking for an hour and a half, just like, like nothing. It's just boom. It's like, you know, time has flown. Time, time just flies. Um, I want to leave you with the final word, which is, uh, you know, what would you, uh, what kind of reflections do you have about your time at West Point, how it's influenced you and influenced your life? And, and uh, what would you want to leave with our classmates? Yeah, so I, I guess two separate questions. So I, as I told you when you were uh, when, when I was filling out the form, I'm like, just totally not the gray hog. If you were in Paul's place, he's got rooms dedicated to West Point and pictures and 
His wife has a closet full of West Point stuff. I have two West Point hats that I got at reunions. Uh, I have a West Point hat, which I actually like. It's pretty comfortable. And that's like the extent of my West Pointness. So I, I, I can't have, I don't have too much like, too much that I've left with. And not that I had bad times there because I certainly didn't. So, so I, I left West Point with, with a couple of the guys that are on the, on the call here and a few other good friends. So j- just a good loyal friend group is what I left with. You know, what, what I would kind of throw out to, to, to all the listeners and, and this will probably be hard for some, but I would challenge everyone to think about is to, you know, step out of the rat race. You know, most people probably wake up every day and I'm guessing since we're West pointers, most people are pretty successful and try to figure out, how do I buy another company or put another fancy car in the garage or buy a second home or, or some kind of a financial goal? Uh, I would challenge everyone to come up with something that don't, not only challenges your mind, but challenges your body and challenges your soul. It's something that you couldn't imagine doing. And maybe if you don't run at all, that's running a marathon maybe it's hiking the Appalachian trail, but, but some sort of similar monumental event and just commit to doing it and, and put a support group around you that can help you be successful and make it happen in a year or two. You know, we're all 50 or, or older. We're not getting any younger. Uh, most people probably aren't in the shape they want. So that's what I would say is do something that physically challenges your body, challenges your mind or soul commit to making it happen, put a group around you and actually just get the damn thing done. Good words to live by. Thanks. Thanks for that. That's what I got for everyone. Well, um, thanks everybody. Thank, thanks everybody that's joined us tonight. We've had several classmates, uh, you know, rolling on and off the podcast and you'll see in the comments uh, quite a few people have had a few things to add to what we've said. I want to also... I want, I should have led with this. I want to congratulate our classmate, Mark West, who successfully defeated Navy this today. They had the Army Navy uh, sprint football game and Army was victorious. So congratulations to the Army sprint football team and Mark West and your leadership. And um, we're going to be doing a few more of these podcasts coming up. We're coming up on our 30 year reunion a year from now. So I want to pick up the pace and make sure I get to every company and have a good mix of career army officers and and people have gotten out and and every hit every demographic that i possibly can think of um, to make sure we get good representation so thank you for joining us on this edition of the duty shall be done old grad podcast please check back on this facebook page for information about featured guests and upcoming episodes of the duty shall be done old grad podcast